Hello everyone, welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 28, The Truceless War, Part 2. Last time, we saw how the end of the First Punic War did not mean the end of Carthage's troubles, as her experienced and disgruntled former mercenaries clamored about the capital for their long overdue pay. As the days lengthened and the soldiers' tempers shortened, what began as a pay dispute steadily grew into a volatile situation. Botched negotiations by the Carthaginian government only incited the mercenaries further until Carthage suddenly found herself with a full-scale revolt on her hands. Events soon spiraled completely out of control when the rebel leaders savagely murdered their old Carthaginian general, Gizgo, and 700 other Carthaginians in a manner so brutal that it shocked not only the Carthaginians, but the ancient world as a whole. All bridges were burned now. There could be no mercy. Polybius writes, Reflecting on this episode, no one could fail to conclude that men's souls are even more liable than their bodies to suffer from lesions and malignant tumors that spread in them and grow in malignancy until they become utterly incurable. In the case of ulcers, even treatment may sometimes inflame them and make them spread more rapidly, while the effect of leaving them untreated to do what they naturally do is that they go on eating away at the surrounding flesh until nothing substantial remains. Something similar happens in men's souls, too, where livid and putrid growths often make people more baleful and cruel than any beast. Polybius' remarks on the depravity of man portended the escalation of the war that followed Gizgo's murder. The mercenaries made good on their promise to subject every Carthaginian prisoner who fell into their hands to the same revolting fate that Gizgo had suffered. In response, an enraged Hamilcar met savagery with savagery. Any rebels who surrendered on the battlefield were slaughtered on the spot. And harsh as this may seem, it soon became evident that those who suffered this punishment were the lucky ones. The other rebels who were taken alive by patrols or in skirmishes were thrown to the elephants to be crushed to death. Coming from a man who had recently shown great clemency to mercenary prisoners, these ruthless orders demonstrate how quickly the war had taken a turn for the worst. In Hamilcar's mind, the mercenaries had become too dangerous to be left alive. There could be no compromise with Gizgo's murderers. Only total annihilation of the rebels could ensure Carthage's survival. While the number of massacres mounted, events elsewhere placed an even greater strain on the exhausted Carthaginians. A vicious storm destroyed a huge merchant convoy carrying vital food supplies from Spain. Further food supplies were cut off when mercenaries on the island of Sardinia, inspired by their counterparts' success in Africa, rose up against their paymasters and began torturing and slaughtering the local Carthaginians on the island. Sardinia, an island which, in the words of Polybius, was exceptional for its size, population, and fertility, had functioned as a Carthaginian breadbasket for generations. As we remember from episode 4, 
Carthage had exerted her influence over Sardinia since the late 6th century BC. Through a series of running fights with the native Nuragic peoples, in addition to consolidation of the flow of raw materials from the interior, Carthage managed to extend her hegemony over the majority of the island. By the 4th century BC, the steady influx of Punic settlers brought large swaths of land under cultivation. Fortified towns established to protect these farmsteads served a dual purpose as market centers for raw goods such as grain, wine, olive oil, and salt, along with manufactured goods like precious stones, jewelry, and incense burners. Within these settlements, the local Punic aristocracy and merchants thrived off of these agricultural and luxury goods, relegating the Nuragic tribes to the forests and hills of the mountainous interior of the island. As her hold on Sardinia tightened, Carthage grew ever more dependent on importing agricultural produce from the island to feed her ever-growing population. After the loss of Sicily, Sardinia assumed even more importance to the Carthaginians. Thus, despite the stress on her homeland, Carthage could not afford to ignore the mercenary threat on Sardinia. Mustering another great effort, the Carthaginians managed to scrape together enough money to send a task force to put down the revolt. Unfortunately, the mercenaries hired to suppress the rebels proved just as faithless as their forebears had been. As soon as they set foot in Sardinia, they declared for the rebels, seizing their Carthaginian commander and crucifying him before venting their spleen on the island's inhabitants. Before long, most of the Carthaginians had either fled or been slain, and soon this second mercenary rebellion ruled over an island which had been Carthaginian for three centuries. The loss of Sardinia threatened to be nearly as catastrophic as the loss of Sicily had been. Famine once again threatened the city, despite continued aid from Hiero, king of Syracuse. Matters worsened when the mercenaries appealed to Rome for protection of their new ill-gotten territory. The temporary loss of Sardinia now threatened to turn into a permanent one, as Carthage's recent formidable enemy pondered how to answer the mercenaries' proposal. One can almost feel the Carthaginians holding their breath as they waited for Rome's response to this offer to place one of the most fertile and strategic islands under Roman control. To audible Carthaginian relief, Rome turned the offer down. Her decision to refuse the mercenaries' allegiance has been the source of much controversy from later historians. Here was a golden opportunity to secure a foothold that would cut off Carthage from the central Mediterranean forever, and yet the Romans withheld their hand. Many different reasons likely played into this decision. For one, Rome too had suffered severely during the First Punic War, and financial exhaustion could have provided a strong incentive to avoid confronting Carthage so soon after the peace treaty. In connection with this, with Sicily under Roman rule, many Romans likely had little interest in extending their influence further south and west across the Mediterranean Sea. Besides this, Rome traditionally saw herself, in the words of historian Gilbert Charles Picard, 
as a guardian of social law and order, and thus Rome proved wary of aiding slave revolts and popular risings, since the spread of such sentiments could endanger her own social stability. Indeed, under the influence of the Fabii family, the more conservative elements in the Roman Senate likely had no wish to further a reputation of being a benefactor of mercenary uprisings. Besides resisting the temptation of Sardinia, Rome took things a step further by providing support, albeit indirectly, of Carthage's war effort. When the Carthaginians seized 500 Italian merchants on the pretext that they were supplying the rebels with food and arms, a subsequent diplomatic mission resolved the dispute so satisfactorily that Rome released all the remaining Carthaginian prisoners of war without ransom as a friendly gesture. This unexpected reinforcement of nearly 3,000 trained soldiers, when such men were scarce, provided Carthage with an excellent corps with which to continue the war. If this was not enough, the Roman Senate forbade any Italian merchant from trading with the rebels on pain of death, but freely allowed them to export vital necessities to Carthage herself, shoring up a flag in Carthage while simultaneously weakening her enemies. The outside support from Rome and Syracuse proved a decisive element in allowing Carthage to prolong the conflict. As food, arms, and men flowed in, the populace gained heart. Nonetheless, the rebels continued to vastly outnumber the Carthaginian field armies. Further dis and further disagreements between the two supreme commanders, Hanno the Great and Hamilcar Barca, gave the mercenaries ample opportunity to damage their former masters. Sharing joint command of the Carthaginian armies, Hanno and Hamilcar fundamentally disagreed on how the campaign should be fought. While they wrangled, the mercenaries continued to roam about the countryside, burning and pillaging at will. At one point, the rivalry between Hamilcar and Hanno grew so acrimonious that they focused more on each other than on the enemy. With their two foremost generals in deadlock, the Carthaginian Senate finally sent orders that one man was to stand down and yield supreme command to the other. With the Senate and Safites divided between the adherents of Hamilcar and Hanno, this crucial decision was delegated to the troops, a faint hint of the weakening power of the aristocratic Carthaginian government. Unsurprisingly, the troops preferred the proven Hamilcar to the mixed record of Hanno, and Hamilcar found himself in the position that best suited him, supreme command. Barely had this problem been solved when news reached Hamilcar that Utica and Hippo Acre, two of the oldest and foremost Phoenician colonies in North Africa, had declared for the rebels. Throughout the centuries under Carthaginian rule, both of these cities had remained faithful even in the dark days during the invasions of Agathocles and Regulus. Now, however, after having withstood a rebel siege, these Phoenician settlements suddenly switched sides, heartily throwing themselves into the savagery of the times. Slaughtering a Carthaginian garrison of 500 men tasked with guarding the cities, the Phoenicians cast the bodies into the ditch surrounding the city 
even refusing to allow the Carthaginians the opportunity to bury their dead soldiers. In 239 BC, two years into the war, emboldened by the defiance of Utica and Hippo Acra, Matho and Spendius determined to gamble everything on an assault on Carthage herself. Leaving behind a small force to hold Tunis, they besieged the capital with their horde of mercenaries, cutting off what little food supplies remained in the country. It was at this juncture that Roman and Syracusan provisions proved critical to keep the city from capitulating due to starvation. And ironically, Carthage's former enemies now kept her alive to fight another day. Meanwhile, Hamilcar had not remained idle. Although outnumbered by almost five times the number of mercenaries, he successfully renewed the tactics which had proven so effective in Sicily. Skillfully deploying his troops to the rear of the besiegers, Hamilcar sent out raiding parties to cut off enemy patrols and foraging parties and sever communications and supplies between the rebel forces. The lightly armed horsemen of the Numidian prince Nerevus proved invaluable in executing these harassing tactics, and Nerevus was admirably seconded by Hannibal, not that Hannibal, this time the son of another Hamilcar, the man who had been responsible for a victory over 4,000 Syracusan troops during the First Punic War, which was mentioned in episode 22. Confused yet? With the aid of these similarly named generals and general sons, Hamilcar's strategy managed to cut off the rebel supplies, turning the tables on the mercenaries and threatening them with starvation in turn. With their food stocks dwindling, a frustrated Matho and Spendius raised the siege of Carthage, but not before gathering an army of 50,000 of the best of the mercenaries and Libyans to track down the man who had thwarted their hopes and crush him in a decisive battle. Deftly avoiding encountering the still superior force of rebels, Hamilcar marched his men along the plain in order to take advantage of his superior cavalry and elephants. By contrast, the mercenaries, dreading Hamilcar's Numidians and elephants, held to the hills until they could find a favorable moment to strike. This cat-and-mouse game continued for some time, but Hamilcar once again proved himself as a superior strategist. Polybius, with only a slight tinge of aristocratic snobbishness, states that the mercenaries proved themselves the equals of their opponents in terms of tactics and daring, but often found themselves at a disadvantage because of inexperience. It was possible at that time to see at first hand the difference between generalship with its scientifically acquired experience and the mindless knack of soldiering, which lacks such experience. Having fired this shot across the bow, Polybius continues, In small-scale engagements, Hamilcar was able to detach groups of the enemy and trap them, like a good backgammon player, so that they could not resist as he slaughtered them, and in full-scale battles, he was able either to lure them into unsuspected ambushes and kill them, or panic them by sudden, unexpected appearances by day or night. Anyone taken alive was thrown to the elephants. Before he knew it, Spendius, 
the general chasing Hamilcar, found himself to be so outplayed by his opponent that he led his entire army into Hamilcar's trap. Though outnumbered five to one, Hamilcar managed to lure the rebels into a box-like canyon known simply as the Saw, due to its unusual shape. Blocking either entrance with trenches and palisade barricades, the Carthaginians encircled the rebels so completely that Spendius dared not risk a battle for a breakout. He and the other rebel leaders all knew that any attempt at negotiation would be futile thanks to their own murder of Gizgo. Now, all they could do was wait. Food quickly ran out, and the soldiers resorted to cannibalism to stay alive, first eating their prisoners, then their slaves, and finally threatening to eat their own officers next. Divine retribution, writes Polybius, for their violation of the laws of gods and men. Faced with becoming their men's next meal, Spendius, Autoritus, and several other rebel leaders decided to try and negotiate a surrender in exchange for their lives. Forming a delegation of ten men to Hamilcar, the rebel leadership abandoned their soldiers in the canyon and made their way to the Carthaginian camp. When the war's greatest criminals appeared before him, Hamilcar informed them that he would allow for a truce if the mercenaries agreed to let him seize ten men of his choosing from the mercenary camp. Surprised by these generous terms and eager to take advantage of them, Spendius, Autoritus, and the other eight leaders readily agreed. Hamilcar then said that he picked the ten rebels standing before him and imprisoned the ten leaders, having in one cunning stroke severed the rebel head while still technically observing the sacred rules of parley. When news of the capture of their commanders reached them, the remaining mercenaries became desperate and attacked the Carthaginian positions. However, leaderless and weakened by hunger, they proved to be no match for the well-fed Carthaginians who surrounded them. In the following so-called Battle of the Saw, Hamilcar and the Carthaginians slaughtered 40 to 45,000 rebels, decimating the rebellion. After the battle, Hamilcar unleashed his Numidian cavalry on the Libyan countryside, prompting many of the Libyans to admit the error of their ways and return to their old allegiance. Any cities foolhardy enough to continue their resistance were taken by storm. With the majority of the Libyan territory pacified, Hamilcar finally moved against Matho, who still held out in Tunis. Encamping his forces on one side of the city, Hamilcar ordered Hannibal to take up a position opposite him in order to allow for no escape from the city. As a portent of punishment to come, the Carthaginians crucified Spendius, Autoritus, and the other rebel leaders in front of the city walls for all to see. But Matho had one last trick up his sleeve. Observing that Hannibal, confident of victory, had become careless, Matho suddenly assaulted Hannibal's camp and drove the Carthaginians from it. Hannibal himself was taken alive and brought to where Spendius was still hanging on the cross. After horribly disfiguring the unfortunate Carthaginian general, Matho took down Spendius's body and replaced it with Hannibal's.
and one final salute to his old comrade. Matho slaughtered 30 Carthaginian noblemen around Spendius's body as a morbid send-off. Having lost his ally on his flank, Hamilcar was forced to withdraw from Tunis towards Carthage. The Carthaginian Senate, alarmed by Matho's recent success, sent a delegation of 30 high-ranking senators to mediate between Hamilcar and Hanno, who had been sent out to replace Hannibal and resume his command. After a series of lengthy speeches, arguments, and entreaties, the mediators managed to bring the two rivals to agree to cooperate in the future. All that remained was to make the final push. All remaining citizens of military age were drafted into the army, and the Carthaginians marched to attack the last rebel force. Matho, conscious that his only hope lay in winning a great victory, rallied all the surviving mercenaries to his banner for one last effort. But the rebel soldiers, bereft of supplies, money, and arms, were at the end of the line. The reckoning had come. In the sharp battle which followed, most of the Libyans were killed, while Matho and the remainder of the mercenaries fell into Carthaginian hands. Carthaginian vengeance followed swiftly. The rest of Libya surrendered in order to avoid further punishment, but Utica and Hippo Acra, both of which had alienated the Carthaginians by their outrageous and savage actions, continued to resist, a fact which prompts Polybius to offer the helpful advice that it is much better to act with moderation and to stop short of purposely and deliberately doing something irremediable. Hamilcar besieged one city, while Hanno invested the other. Soon both were brought back to Carthaginian sway. As a final act of triumph, the Carthaginian soldiers paraded through the city, leading Matho in chains. As this hated leader of barbarians passed them by, the cause of all their griefs and suffering over the past three years and four months, the Carthaginian mob vented their fury on the captured Matho, torturing and mutilating him until he collapsed and died of his wounds. In the words of historian Richard Miles, thus a war which in the words of Polybius far excelled all wars we know of in cruelty and defiance of principle was perhaps fittingly concluded with a hideous death. Carthage would emerge from the truceless war changed forever. Coupled with the debacles of the First Punic War, the revolt of the mercenaries showed how decadent incompetent and impotent Carthage's aristocratic regime had become. Having sustained disaster after disaster under their reign, the common people of Carthage at last felt that a change was in order. What was needed now was a strong man of proven capability to take the helm and restore order to the arthritic Carthaginian empire. The people would not have to look far for such a champion. Next time, we will see how the aftermath of the truceless war caused a revolution in Carthaginian politics, perhaps the first that the conservative city had seen since Dido's founding nearly six centuries before. Until then, take care and read more history.